You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. I I would say it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas if Christmas was wet and sad. Uh, But here we are. Here we are. Welcome back to week three of Advent. Um, My name is Andrew Flowers. It is uh, truly an honor to be one of your pastors and uh, glad to be together in this season of Advent, remembering the the coming of our Savior Jesus. Uh, If you've got a Bible or an application this morning, you can actually flip over to Luke 2. So uh, Jesus read from Isaiah 61 this morning, and um, we'll, we'll reference some of that as we go, and then we'll get to Luke 2 and kind of move from there. So The past couple of weeks, we have been in Isaiah as well. So we've looked at prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 9 that have foretold the hope and peace that would come when the Messiah arrived. Today, as Jesus read, we're jumping ahead to Isaiah 61 to see another prophetic promise that would come with the Messiah. So a major change has happened here between Isaiah 7 and 9 and then Isaiah 61. So in the beginning of Isaiah, he's actually giving warnings to God's people if they don't repent. He warns them not to align with the Assyrians or the kingdom of Babylon that is around them. He warns them these kingdoms will betray them. He, he reminds them that God is their hope, and their king, and their security. In other words, their circumstances aren't great, but Isaiah's warning is that, hey, if you don't repent, they're actually going to get worse. But they don't listen. They look at the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires, and they see power. They see affluence. They see security. They see hope. They ignore God's gracious warnings because they think that what they see will make their lives Better. They think, they think they see a path to joy, but strangely, it turns out God is right. They ignore God's gracious warnings because they, see, they think they see a way to make things right themselves. But in Isaiah 61, God's people have sustained enormous casualties. Many have been kidnapped and brought into the kingdom of Babylon. They've been enslaved in a foreign land. So it's not, it's not a joyous time for these people, but just like in Isaiah 7 and 9, the book of Isaiah continues to promise that God isn't done with his people. He's still going to send a Savior. He knows their shame and their dishonor, but he has something better planned for them. Good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound, shame and dishonor removed. God promises that he's going to send someone who will bring eternal and everlasting joy. Eternal and everlasting joy. So we'll jump forward to Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. Verses will be up on the screen for you as well. So this is what it says. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The angel proclaimed to the shepherds, Good news of great joy 
for all the people. It's one of those classic Advent passages. I feel like I can picture the people dressed in the shepherd robes around some poor crying infant, and we, we can see it. But it's a promise that's pointing back to Isaiah 61, right? Great joy, good news for all the people. And we get confirmation in the person and the words of Jesus in Luke 4. So if you want to flip on over to Luke 4 or swipe however you get there, Luke 4 in verse 14. Luke 4, starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's been led by God's Spirit into the wilderness. And in some of my favorite biblical language, so he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And verse 14 says, he's returning in the power of the Spirit. So he's led by the Spirit and returned in the power of the Spirit. He's, he's beginning to preach and teach. He's teaching in synagogues in every town in the region of Galilee, and it's going great. He's being glorified by all. People realize something is happening. He's a rising star. And now, like many of us will do over the holidays, Jesus is heading back home. So verse 16, it says this. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, this is our scripture from Isaiah 61 this morning. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads Isaiah 61. It's this beautiful promise and prophecy that the Messiah anointed by God would come to bring good news to the poor bring liberty to the captives, restore sight to the blind, bring freedom to those who are oppressed. He quotes the prophecy to the people around him, and he says the people will have their shame removed. And as that verse 7 ended, that Jesus read, they shall have everlasting joy. Our passage in Luke 4 continues. It says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, or a modern translation in the memeable words of Michael Scott, it's happening! It's happening! Stuff is going down. So in Luke 2, the angel proclaims to the shepherds that Jesus' birth is good news of great joy for all people. 30 years later, Jesus rolls into town, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, reads Isaiah 61, and confirms the angel was telling the truth. Good news, great joy for all people, poor people, imprisoned people, oppressed people, bringing everlasting joy for all of them. It is happening. And since those announcements, millions and millions of people have found hope, peace, and joy in Jesus. But kind of to unpack some of that for a better understanding for us this morning of what eternal joy is all about, I'd like us just to see three things that Jesus' Advent teaches us about joy. So we're just going to look at three things this morning. Number one is that Advent points us to the constant source of joy. 
Advent points us to the constant source of joy. We, we talked about it, just kind of the, the background of what the people in Isaiah 61 were going through. God's people are crushed. Many have been kidnapped and enslaved. They aren't going through joyful circumstances. But the promise is that someone is coming who will bring everlasting joy. The promise is eternal joy, perpetual joy, joy that's unshakable. And see, this is actually what God's people in Isaiah missed. They're looking around at their circumstances. They're looking around them thinking if we were more powerful like the kingdoms around us, then we'd have joy. If we were more wealthy, then we'd have joy. If our circumstances were perfectly aligned with our desires, then our joy would be secure. If our home looked like we wanted to, then we would have the joy that we seek. And Isaiah keeps on going, no, no, no. God is your strength. God is your security. God is your treasure. God is your king. God is your help. God is your home. Translation, God is the source of your joy. He's not just the giver of joy. He is the source. Uh, if it's okay, we're going to do a little language study this morning. Woo, fun. Um, so I think that the biblical Greek actually gives us a good insight to this. So the biblical Greek for the word joy is hara. I've had a little cough this week, so the actually comes pretty naturally. So it's hara. And it has the same root word. Uh, it's actually hyro, which means to rejoice and be glad. And hyro is the same root of the word haris, which is grace. So joy and grace are kind of inter interlocked in the language together. So both the language and the biblical author, Luke, I think, are doing something intentional here. So you note the joy you feel when you receive a free gift, a gift you didn't earn, maybe you didn't deserve. And for Christians, that's the source of joy that we can actually have all the time. At all times, regardless of circumstances, you can have awareness of God's grace to you. The undeserved gift of Christmas that God sent his son for you, that Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection offer you redemption freely. That God wants to adopt you into his family and give you fullness of life. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Advent. It's a constant source of joy that can endure. No matter how your day went, no matter how your job or your marriage is going, retirement account is up, great, but not my source of joy. Retirement account is down, still have joy. Uh, as a parent, it's very easy to see how circumstances aren't a good source of joy. I would say that my four-year-old is learning this, but maybe not yet. So her circumstances totally dictate her idea of if a day was good or bad, or if I am good or bad, or if joy is being found at all. And it rests mainly on one magical word, and that word is treat. Did I get a treat at school today? No, you didn't? Was it a good day or a bad day? Probably a bad day, huh? Oh, it was good. Well, you're better than, than my little girl. That's great. That's amazing. It's amazing. A treat, a prize at school in the school bus, getting to the top of the behavior stoplight 
whatever. They're all day winners. Uh, she's also started saying when I deny a request that uh, I'm ruining her day. Oh, oh, I'm ruining her day because we can't wear the ballet leotard to dinner. The day is ruined. And it's silly. It's silly, right? But the problem is for her and for you and for me, for us, those things are unsteady. They're not reliable. The circumstances of our life are not reliable enough to actually find joy in them consistently. Because some days don't have candy, and some days friends sin against you. And as adults, we can be just as guilty of relying on unsteady things as our source of joy. Hopefully not treats and candy, but still unsteady things. Uh, your, your boss's attitude towards your work or even your own attitude towards your work is not steady enough to be the source of our joy. Uh, my kid's behavior is not steady enough to be the source of my joy. It's just unsteady. But Advent is pointing us to a better sur- source of joy, a constant and everlasting source of joy. So that, that's number one, Advent points us to the constant source of joy. Point number two is that Advent points us to the relational nature of joy. Advent points us to the relational nature of joy. Uh, There's a scientist named Dr. Alan Shore. So he's a medical doctor. He's a psychologist and researcher in the field of neuropsychology. So he's super smart, super smart guy. Um, And one of the things that he's been researching specifically is kind of the joy centers of our brains and what things set them off highest and most consistently, what what things kind of fire off that joy center in our brain. And uh, the things that we would think would bring us the most joy, like good news or a good gift or, or good things happening around us, having fun, a certain rivalry victory, right? Those things can bring us a certain amount of joy. And all those things show up in in our brains and the studies, but the thing that causes our brains to show the most joy, when we're experiencing the most joy, is the moment when people see someone they love and their face lights up. When you come face-to-face with someone that you love and their face lights up and yours responds to theirs, that's actually when the joy center of our minds fire the most and most consistently. Face-to-face warmth and glow. Uh, Have you ever seen, I'm sure you have, the videos where someone is coming home from service and it's a surprise and the wife doesn't know that it's happening or the husband doesn't know that it's happening and then they turn around and it's just, and it's everywhere, right? So it's like they've run it into the ground. Every live sporting event you've ever been to, uh, every live TV event, they're even running it on Chick-fil-A commercials, right? So it's like, they're revealing that this person that you love has been returned to you. And it, it, they're running it into the ground, but it still works because it's science. And it's science because it's how we were created. It's how our minds were created. There, there's a great little book called The Other Half of Church. The Other Half of Church that picks up on this and it points out places where we actually see this concept in the Bible. So um, uh, a quote on verse that I use pretty often sometimes is from Psalm 16. It says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. The, the literal Hebrew is saying, in the presence of your face, there's fullness of joy. 
Uh, this is most clearly seen, I feel like, in number six. It's a blessing that we're pretty familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turns his face towards you and give you peace. What's the blessing? It's let the joy of the Lord's face shine on you. Have peace of knowing that God turns his face towards you with grace and love. It's a beaming face. If you would entertain my Christmassy connection, it's a face that's merry and bright. To continue our word study this morning, the most common Hebrew word for joy is samach. So samach shows up 152 times in the Old Testament, and it means happiness in the fullest sense. But its most literal sense, it means to brighten. It means to brighten. So it's this idea that God's face will shine upon you and be gracious to you. That is our source of joy, and it's relational with God. So however the way that your decorated Christmas tree can brighten your face and bring joy in the midst of darkness, but even more than that, in light of number six, Psalm 16, in light of all of this, nothing can brighten your life like knowing God's face is shining on you. In this moment, right now, how do you think that God is looking at you? If you had a glimpse of what God's face was doing in this moment and he sees you, what does his face look like? And uh, in, in kind of working on this sermon, I, I found this quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is from his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, it's, it's written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. And I, I add parenthetically that his face will look to us. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. And to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist's delight in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our, our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So it is. When God's face looks to you because of Emmanuel, because of God with us, because of Jesus, Jesus has secured for us that God's face is shining on us, not because we deserve it, not because our circumstances are good, but because he does. Jesus deserves it. He gives us, he secures for us the warm glow of God's face shining on us in the same way that God's, God the Father's face shines on God the Son's. He beams over him, and as we place our faith in Christ, he beams over you. Which leads us straight into our third Advent reflection on joy. is that Advent invites us into an unsinkable resilience of joy. An unsinkable resilience of joy. 
Uh, I used it uh, about probably a year and a half ago when I, when I preached on joy most recently, but I, I really love this quote from, from Dr. Tim Keller. It, it says this, it says, joy is a buoyancy. It's a spiritual buoyancy that comes when you're rejoicing in God. And that doesn't mean we're impervious to suffering. It means we're unsinkable. I love that. It's a spiritual buoyancy, like trying to hold a beach ball underwater and it just keeps popping back up. That no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what's going on around us, we have an unsinkable joy. And that promise given to God's people in Isaiah 61 comes to a people whose circumstances are beyond broken. The family that Jesus is born into in the incarnation finds their lives thrown into a social scandal and eventually having to flee to Egypt because a political maniac is seeking to kill their son. The the people of Nazareth, Jesus reads this Isaiah 61 to and announces that he's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. They are oppressed by a brutal Roman empire. Many taxed into poverty and in fear because the governmental forces around them. And in none of these cases does God promise to, in the moment, fix their circumstances in this life. God's promise to bind up and to free doesn't mean that that will happen today. And although God's kingdom is moving forward and his spirit and church are active, we won't see those promises fully and finally until Jesus returns and brings the kingdom of heaven fully to earth. He doesn't promise us lives of ease or wealth. He doesn't promise for our circumstances to always point us to joy, but he does promise us the joy of his presence. He promises us the joy of his presence, which is great news for me. It's great news for us. It's great news for me as one of your pastors because I don't know what you're going through in this Advent season. I don't know where your life's at. I don't know if this is the happiest or saddest Christmas that you've been through. I don't know if your season is marked by God's favor and blessing. I don't know if you're questioning what on earth God is doing or whether he's even good with you or even if he's hearing your painful cries at night. I don't know if the metaphorical Christmas tree of your life is overflowing with gifts or if you're experiencing intense pain, broken relationships, frustrating circumstances, financial stress, marital breakdown, parenting with a grief, uh, parenting grief with a sick or rebellious child, grief of loss or a loved one, the first holidays without them. Or, or maybe you're even somewhere in between. Maybe your life is just kind of marked by a malaise and a blah, kind of mundane, neither high nor low, more apathetic than not. You're just kind of going through the motions. But what I do know is that no matter the circumstances, God is inviting you into a deeper joy, an unsinkable, unshakable joy. Two weeks ago when we talked about hope, hope is being rooted in the future that someday God will make good on his promises. But joy is real-time power in the here and now. It's real-time power in the here and now that flows from setting our minds and hearts on the grace of God, no matter our circumstances. 
no matter our circumstances. There, there's a writer named Ben Faro who talks about how so many of these things that we take joy in in our life are temporary at best and ultimately taken away from us. They will ultimately take, be taken away from us if we're living long enough. And he said this, he said, your joy is only as strong as your deepest layer. Your joy is only as strong as your deepest layer. And what he means is that if your joy is dependent on you having a job that feels really fulfilling to you, then that's a really precarious place to be. Because you might not have that job. And even if you do have that job, you could lose that job. So your joy is sinkable. And if your joy is dependent on your current marital reality matching your expectations, then you're going to find yourself putting a lot of pressure on your spouse or putting a lot of pressure on yourself. If your joy is dependent on everybody in your family behaving correctly over the holidays, then you're going to be pretty stressed and tension is going to be pretty high just because it's not something that is stable. Your joy is sinkable. If your joy is attached to your kids or your spouse's life turning out a certain way, and you're going to end up being really controlling or anxious or some combination of the two. My concern is that you may end up lacking the resilient joy that's required to go on loving your kids, your family, the people in your life group, faithfully no matter what the outcomes. Because your joy, your love for them is dependent on something that's not steady. Some of you may be thinking, if I could just change person in this this person in this way, or if I could just change my job situation, or if I could just fix my spouse, if I could just look like this, if I could just make my circumstances better, then I'd be able to be happy. Then I'd be able to find joy. But the reality is you have no ultimate power to make many, if at all, any of these things happen. You don't want your joy tied to things that are unknown and wildly outside of your control. Not if you want a resilient, unsinkable, unshakable joy. That that quote from Ben Farrow goes on to say this, to face a serious sadness in a deeply important layer of your life, we have to cultivate a foundation of even deeper joy a foundation of even deeper joy. And that's what Jesus offers to us in Advent. That's what Jesus offers to us in the incarnation. So what it's about. No matter where your life is, no matter your circumstances, whether exquisitely enjoyable, excruciatingly painful, or a grayscale, low-grade blah, you can be unsinkable because Christ has come for you. No matter what, the God of all joy is fighting for your joy. He's drawing you to himself. He's longing to share with you the joy that he has enjoyed for all eternity. He wants it so much that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus wants his joy for you so much that he came. He entered into the reality of this world. He suffered incredibly. He bled and died for your joy. He was born. He lived and died so that you could know for a fact, no matter what else is going on in your life, that joy can persevere because God's face is shining on you. 
At the deepest layer, there is a resilient joy that can't be shaken because of who Jesus is, what he's done. It's a joy that can persevere. It's a joy that can endure. A joy that doesn't mean we're impervious to suffering, but it means that we're unsinkable. Unsinkable. Let's pray.